Anyway, as I was um, wiping my glasses, which is a kind of ritual that I'm sometimes mindful of uh, at the beginning of the evening conversation or discourse, I remembered probably 15 years ago one of the meditators who used to sit uh, with me on Dolores Street saw me blowing on my glasses, untucking my shirt, and then tucking it back in, just my routine, and took uh, some mercy on me or whatever, had a very compassionate thought, and the next week brought me little tissues and and some little spray for my glasses. <laughs> and when I thought of her tonight, I thought of... Uh, what what a beautiful gesture that was. And, and then I thought of her and what a beautiful being she was. She is. I haven't seen her in quite a while. R- really beautiful being. But I know that the being who did, who did this didn't think she was such a beautiful being. And she didn't think she was such a beautiful being partly because of the way that she had been related to in her life. A very strict, demanding father who uh, basically left the impression that whatever she did was not quite good enough. Any of you ever have that one in your background? Well, it was so obvious to me, in spite of the way that she viewed herself, that that whatever those distorted, whatever those views were completely distorted. And they obscured mostly to her, not to other people necessarily, but mostly to her. Now I'll back up and say sometimes when we carry around certain views of ourselves, we, it ends up, we end up in some way, uh, it ends up becoming a self-fulfilling prophecy. We actually pull for others to relate to us in the negative way that we think about ourselves. That sometimes happens. But more often than not, we can be perceived as, uh, as, the, as the lovely beings that we are. But yet internally, we're telling ourselves something uh, dramatically different, that there's, deeply, there's something deeply wrong with us. Something wrong. And the reason I thought of this tonight and thought about this person in this way is because several people, in fact, in successive days, one uh, who's here tonight, Kirti, and then someone just yesterday... Uh, commented on a um, a theme that had been running through some of my talks uh, since the time that um, my daughter Molly was born, and it had to do with me talking about her Molliness. And last week you weren't here, Kirti, but last week I talked about. Uh, being Mr. Mom and Mr. Dad for a week while my wife visited her, her um, dying father. He's still here, by the way, and uh, not having an easy time making the transition, but he's, um, 
that he's relatively comfortable. But uh, I talked about Molly pouring water on the table, and then I don't know if I included the part about her saying that she hated me and <laughs> just, you know, typical seven-year-old stuff. But you may not have gotten the impression uh, from the at least the angle of last week's topic that um, that she really is, in spite of her developmental schedule and what she's what her conditioning is and what her uh, you know all the things that she's going through, she still has this uh, so obvious essential molliness. She has she is so uniquely Molly. And she could not be any like any she could not be like anything else. And she is perfectly Molly. Although at the same time as being perfectly Molly, congruent with natural natural psychological development, she's also beginning to uh, to enter into that process of separating herself out and comparing and evaluating. And I even, even at age four, I think I came here one night and talked about how she wanted to... Uh, she has, has wavy hair and she was pushing it down and trying to straighten it when she was four years old. That broke my heart. But that's what people do. We look and see what others and then all of a sudden slowly slowly we begin to move from the the living in unconsciously in the in I'll use uh, her name in our molliness in our version of molliness just our perfect expression of life that couldn't be any different we move into as she is is moving into the psychological version of molly she's still fully molly but in her mind she's beginning to think of herself as that um, uh, as separate apart from the flow of life a little bit uh, much more able to compare and uh, see who has this, who has that, and want what she doesn't have and not want what she does have, and complain, and, you know, all the things that, that every human being goes through. And ideally, from that undifferentiated molliness, she will, at some point in the span of her life, which is really the promise of meditation practice, she will return to a deep appreciation for her molliness, for her unique expression of life. And I like to talk about molliness because when I look at you and when I hang out with you, I see your version of molliness. And yet I know also, because I have one myself, I know that um, my... Sakaya Ditti, my personality view, doesn't always uh, measure up to, uh, or doesn't, um, I, I forget of my perfect howiness. You see my howiness. You can see I couldn't be any different than the way I am. I'm stuck with, <laughs> with howiness. Molly is stuck with molliness. But that is a beautiful thing. It shouldn't look like anyone else. You should not look like anyone else. And it seems that it 
we do not reclaim after having gone through this sometimes very circuitous, weird kind of wandering here and there trying to build, defend, protect, establish our identities, our place in life, our, some way that we can say, I am special. Forgetting, of course, that we are uniquely special, as is. But in, often we have to go a, a long we have to wander. It's the very definition of samsara. We have to wander a long time confused. But hopefully, we begin to, in our process of stopping, paying attention, keeping quiet, hopefully, we begin to reclaim that heritage. Not in the unconscious way that Molly as a tiny little girl did. It was just pure Molly. But more as an adult with full consciousness of our beauty, of our enoughness, of our... um, And then to, once we begin to reclaim that heritage, I always think whenever I use that expression, reclaim our heritage, I stole it. I have to admit it. I stole it from Thich Nhat Hanh, who said, you, who are the richest person on earth, who've been going around begging for a living, stop being that destitute child. Come home, reclaim your heritage. And then he goes on to say, and be passionate about uh, your caring. Because what happens when we reclaim our heritage when we reclaim our sense of inner sufficiency just by the habit of getting out of the way, so to speak, by coming out of, as Rumi put it, coming out of the tangle of fear thinking and living in silence and to continue his poem, flowing down and down and down in ever-widening rings of being, where we let ourselves open quite naturally, we start to feel the maturity of our version of molliness. The maturity of our version of molliness has the natural expression of caring, of generosity, of much more patience, of much more spaciousness, of much more, did I say compassion? Much more, uh, much more contentment much more calm. Why? Not because we created these things from our practice, but because we reclaim them. We rediscovered what is intrinsic in us, but has, that has gotten lost. I think the poem I may have closed last week, although I'm, I'm having a senior moment, where Derek Walcott says, you will love again the stranger who was yourself. Give love, give bread, give back your heart to, this, to yourself, to the one who has known you all your life, whom you ignored for another, who knows you by heart. Take down the love letters from the bookshelves, the angry notes, the, or whatever it is. Peel your own image from the mirror. Sit and feast on your life. This is the, the promise of practice to reclaim our molliness. And why, I think, every week, at some point in the span of our time together, I 
generally will invite you in some form or another to step out of the step out of your view for a moment out of your habitual view of insufficiency and self-consciousness and fear and certainty of some kind of essential flaw any of you ever have that one to step out of that for a moment and just see what you are like after your last thought has ceased and before the next one arises First, perhaps, to discover that whatever you thought yourself to be on present evidence, you can't find it. And so at first, it may feel like a blank nothing. It may, or may just, you may feel the whiff of peace. You may even feel the sense for a moment of contentment or spaciousness or home or ease. It's not because we created this. All we did for a moment is suspended our usual fixed view of I'm narrow, I'm too little, I'm too big, I'm too much, I'm too this, I'm too that. I won't be, I can't be, I will be, maybe, hope, expectation. We drop it for a moment. The source of so much torment, so source of so much suffering is living in this um, second-hand erroneous, fictitious version of ourselves that plays in our mind that once we notice it, it can be a great reminder of our version of molliness. When we just see how far, how different that version is that plays through our mind and what our immediate experience is. The more we see that difference, it's actually kind of a painful... It, the more we get used to being here, it's even that much more painful when you get caught in your personal story. But that's actually good news in a way. Because that, that pain of being stuck in your personal story is the inspiration that we need to embrace our molliness. So I'm asking you again tonight to uh, embrace your version of molliness. Which means don't look back, don't look ahead, and just kind of sense yourself. Not the idea of yourself, but your direct experience. And you may discover, as my teacher Punjaji puts it, and again, I may have repeated this last week, because who knows. I just did a retreat. I've, another ins- thing that inspired me was that... Uh, there was a, a, I just led a retreat over the weekend and uh, up in the, um, the frozen, what's almost f- frozen in uh, the, northern, the northern big city of uh, Alberta in, Brit- in, uh, in uh, Canada. And it's already really cold up there. It's amazing. I saw snow. <laughs> it's snowed. It just blows my mind that just a few hour plane ride and it's snowing. But anyway, getting back to this person came up to talk to me uh, during, the, during one of the walking periods. And she said, I just want to talk to you about something that I'm, I wouldn't want to talk about in front of the whole group. And she said, I deal, uh, I deal with, um, with shyness with intense shyness. And she's sitting 
with me. And from the time she was a little girl, everybody was telling her how shy she was. And she's looking at me and looking into my eyes, and I'm seeing this person who is anything but shy. But yet, she is so habituated to, the, to this personality view. I said, you're not shy, she says. And I, I, I just said it kind of spontaneously. You're not shy. She says, I know. <laughs> and I said, you could not be any more beautiful than you are. More, in, more not in need of being any different. Or in being more extrovert or more any of that. And we had this moment where, she had already seen it, but we had this moment where she stepped out of that whole identity. We talked a little bit about how it was reinforced and how extroversion is glorified and people who are, are more introverted, more sensitive in some way. And uh, sometimes it's very easy to get an, a personality view or a self-view that there's some limitation or something wrong. We talked about all that. But for her to be able to just even for one moment in the span of her life step out of that personality view... It was as though I just saw this incredible light beam. And, I, and as I look at you, it's the exact same. I see it every week here. The personal light beams, one after another. There's not one person here who isn't that, again, that unique and perfect expression of life. It doesn't mean that you have great uh, habits. It doesn't mean that you're not self-destructive or you're this or you're that. All these patterns. But one of the ways that we begin to, to actually heal some of our patterns is to, um, is to get a glimpse, get a sense of um, that uh, feeling of sufficiency. Because it's the feeling of insufficiency that drives a lot of our compulsion, that drives a lot of the habits that that actually cause us suffering. You know, when I'm feeling sufficient, I don't want to make it. I don't want to make trouble. I don't want to be compulsive. I don't want to hurt myself. I don't want to hurt anyone else. I'm more chilled out. And when I'm more chilled out, I'm more generous. I'm more kind. You know, I'm speaking the obvious. So we can fix, we can work a lot on our habits. I think it's a great thing. It's part of the Dharma, establishing this deep reservoir of goodwill and harmonious action. But that in itself, and of course that'll, that starts reminding us that we're, starts helping us hear the, the echo of our intrinsic good, our basic goodness. Basic, and I can say with so much confidence that we have basic goodness. Because I've seen for 26 years now people given safe conditions and everybody becomes beautiful in safe conditions. Everybody becomes a Buddha. Everybody becomes tender and sweet. And even with all the patterning, with lifetime worth of, of bad habits, everybody is beautiful when safe, protected. So where was I? Oh, yeah. Oh, yes, about our personality views. 
<laughs> you want to hear what I have to say? <laughs> okay. Well, this is Punjaji. You need the past and thoughts to suffer. You don't need anything to be free. The boulders of the past rest on your chest and destroy your life and freedom. Did I read this last week? See? Danny says yes. I'll read it anyway. The boulders of the past rest on your chest and destroy your life and freedom. Remove them by finding the origin of of these I thoughts. Just basically being mindful of their roots, beginnings and ends. Freedom waits, but most are engaged with something else. Don't tie yourself to anything in the past or the future because it will not work. Be attached only to this moment. It's not like the moment we're attached to, like it's a thing that we're going to hold on to. It's you. It's you where life is touching you in this instant. Remember that line from the the movie Eat, Pray, Love. The divine is in you as you. That's the moment. How do you know how's the moment known other than consciousness? Your consciousness, your natural state of wakefulness, that's how it's known. That's how the moment is known. So be it, he says, be attached only to this moment. When you hold to something other than your true nature, you will be disturbed. By holding attachment to transient things, like personalities, views, and stories, When you hold attachment to transient things, you declare to yourself that you are not the fullness in which all is. I was perusing the uh, Angutra or the Majjhima Nikaya. I actually copied this, uh, an online section of the Majjhima, which is the middle length sutras of the Buddha really the most of the the core teachings come out of the Majjhima Nikaya this is uh, Majjhima Nikaya Sutta 131 called one it's interesting after uh, Punjaji says be attached only to this moment and the Majjhima in the Sutta 131 it's called one fortunate attachment let not a person revive the past or on the future build his hopes. For the past has been left behind and the future has not been reached. Instead, with insight, let him see each presently arisen state. Let him know that and be sure of it invincibly, unshakably. Today the effort must be made. Tomorrow death may come. Who knows? No bargain with mortality can keep him and his hordes away. No one who dwells thus ardently, relentless day by night, it is he, the peaceful sage, has said, who has one fortunate attachment. I'll just... 
one who dwells thus ardently, relentless, by day, by night. Which means simply dwells right here. It is, I think, true that all of us, all of us deeply want to be happy and want to be free of suffering. And yet there is a view that happiness uh, is not something really possible. And yet, I, as I started the evening, I said, I read from Gendon Rinpoche, where he said, happiness cannot be found through great effort and willpower, but is already present in open relaxation and letting go. I think you get the point. We have to, at least, if we, unless we just want to want to be happy, if you have any inclination that the Buddha had something useful to offer, see if what he says is true. See what happens when you dwell moment by moment right where you are. See what you discover when you... Start when you start through your mindful attention, acting in ways that are non-harming. See what happens when you experience yourself free, as the sutta suggests. Let not a person revive the past or on the future build his hopes. Moment by moment, it's not like a project. It's a, mo- a moment by moment. Abandon the past, abandon the future. See what you discover. I have a feeling if you really do this, you will, um, you will or you already recognize your version of molliness. And perhaps, as I do every time I speak of this, I start to feel that I'm I'm uh, connected again with that inexhaustible, uh, sufficient aspect of my nature. I'm connected with the sense of, of enough, of... Uh, I can't... I'm connected with, the, with, uh, with life, with not the story of me, but the direct experience of myself and I can't find too much wrong with that and so that's where at least that's where I feel as though I'm much more I feel as though what I discover on present evidence is much more uh, accurate than, than what I discover in my memory and that's what I want to um, trust And I want to, as Hafiz put it, I don't want to be, I want to stop being so religious. He says, what do sad people have in common? It seems they have all built a shrine to the past and often go there to do a strange wail and worship. What is the beginning of happiness? It is to stop being so religious like that.
because otherwise we walk around with this deep conviction as this person who who went to see Eckhart Tolle and he said I cannot believe I could ever reach a point where I'm completely free of my problems and Eckhart Tolle responded by saying you are right you can never reach that point because you are at that point right now there is no salvation in time you cannot be free in the future presence is the key to freedom so you can only be free now now isn't it you may notice when you hear things like that you'll, your mind will go but but what about but and we go right into our story right into our situation right into yesterday right into tomorrow right into the second hand version of ourselves and yet the beauty of mindful attention is we can notice that oh there's my butt and as my teacher Poonjaji used to say no butts no buts because but is always of the past no buts so just for a moment suspend your butt <laughs> just sit on it <laughs> So here's, um, here's Nisargadat Maharaj. Once you understand that the false needs time, and what needs time is false, you are near the reality, which is timeless, ever in the now. Reality is what makes the present so vital, so different from past and future, which are merely mental. If you need to achieve something, it must be false. I don't mean if you achieve something or want to achieve. If you need to achieve something, it's false. The real is always with you. You need not wait to be what you are. Only you must not allow your mind to go out of itself in search. When you want something, ask yourself, do I really need it? And if the answer is no, then just drop it. Questioner to Nisargadatta, must I not be happy? I may not need a thing, yet if it can make me happy, should I not grasp it? Nisargadatta responds, nothing can make you happier than you are. All search for happiness is misery and leads to more misery. The only happiness worth the name is the natural happiness of conscious being, being conscious. Just have a few minutes left, so... Please, Patricia. I was just a question. I mean, I, I have some fear that I'm being 
Yes. No, you just have to relate. You just have to relate to the that everyone here, Trisha's comment. You just have to relate to the the beauty in her. You can't change her thinking unless she's really interested. What? Well, I, then, I I think you just have to, as um, as one teacher that I had many years ago, try to just. Find the sanity in her and then speak to the sanity because every person has a spark of sanity in spite of and you want to exploit the sanity in her whenever you can but you know people we tend to hold on to our views because we're used to them and they're they're more comfortable uh, I was when you started to say um I just remembered the line from that woman, Jocelyn King, where she says, why do we prefer, you, seem, you said that she seemed to prefer, she says, why do we prefer the quicksand of somethingness rather than the firm ground of emptiness? We don't realize that our, the house that ego built is on quicksand. We realize it, but the pain, the the vulnerability, and the insecurity that comes from actually recognizing that is much scarier than the morbid attachment to the pain of not doing it. And until until one actually, until by grace or by glance or who knows, glimpses that. Um, that basic goodness uh, there's not much you can do except love them up and and try to exploit their sanity and but trying to convert is just um, very problematic she resists any yeah so it's probably important for you to to uh, feel the disappointment and the grief of her not turning out the way you would would like her to and the way you th- know that might be helpful for her and perhaps if you if you let yourself feel your grief maybe that'll free her up because you, you may you may work her a little bit in your mind it's like trying being in a relationship and you know wanting your partner to be different you know, the more you try, the more entrenched they become. And I know that in in the cases where I I used to be very um, in some of my early relationships, I was very critical and very and really busy trying to change the person I was with, and they never seemed to oblige. And interestingly enough, when I really just was able through support from others to feel the disappointment uh, by some miraculous. It's not really so miraculous, but then they had room to just be the way they are. And I can't say that'll be true for your sister, but you have to get off of it. If to whatever degree you are trying, uh, just love her up.
and love your pain around it. That's about all we can work with. Please, last comment, and then we have to... The per- about the person who brought me tissues, yes. Bicycling across the street, and he heard a huge crash. For those who can't hear, and a motorcycle similar to mine, even though I was not, I was on a bicycle, had been hit and went down. And uh, I just turned around, went right over, took pictures of the guy that hit him, took pictures of the bike. Um, motorcycle went down, he turned around, took pictures of the bike, the pictures of the guy who hit him, etc., etc. Yeah. And then I, because I know what they do to bikes when they tow them, I said to him, I will take your bike to my garage where you can pick it up after you get out of the hospital. He, he volunteered to take the person's bike to his house that he could get after the person got out of the hospital. So I, Beautiful. I stored it in there. just like so pleased that you know I checked out his bike and they said you know everything's fine except you're low on oil <laughs> and, um, and the thing is, is he was just you know all this gratitude and I said and, I, and it was that same thing like well is gratitude it's just it's the natural thing to do it's the natural thing to do exactly and I was thinking about it you know and he wanted to send me Yeah, and you got the joy of giving. Yeah, and it was also the thing is, is, is when I was hit, I was alone. My bike was completely crushed. I never saw it again. And, yes. And, and that terrible aloneness at night, just with all the paramedics gathering around. Yes. And my leg is split open, thinking I'm going to lose it from here down. Ay, ay, ay. And I just do that just because I don't want anyone to feel yes, good. beautiful that's a compassionate heart and that's our that's our nature you're beautiful you're a beautiful Kevin thank you we, no that's but you can I, I know you can't but yeah but that's that's what's natural exactly and you can you can trust that beautiful thank you So I usually use this quote in the context of feeding, of chasing after desires that will not really deliver, but I will use it tonight in the context of chasing personality views that will not deliver. This is a line from the poem from Hafiz called Casture Votes for Dancing. I won't read the whole poem. He says, learn to recognize the counterfeit coins that may buy you a moment of pleasure, but then drag you for days like a broken man behind a farting camel. (laughs) 
That is the danger of living, incarnating in these erroneous views of yourself. So please begin to trust your life on present evidence, not present situation. Your immediate direct experience, wherever you can find it, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, even thinking. Ah, thinking. That's all. That's it. And you'll start to, you'll start to act like Kevin. I know you already do, but anyway, thank you for that story, Kevin. So let's just sit quietly for one moment. As Emerson put it, who you are shouts so loud, I can't hear what you say. May all beings discover their intrinsic beauty, natural happiness. May all beings be free of suffering and the causes of suffering. May all beings live with ease and equanimity. May our practice tonight, every day, be dedicated to the welfare of all beings so that all beings can live with ease and a sense of well-being. May all beings be free. Thank you. Thank you for sharing your, your version of Molliness here tonight. And just a reminder that uh, this room costs us $150 per week. Any help with the room rental uh, called Room Rental Donna, act of generosity, supports other people being able to sit, much appreciated. And any teaching that's offered here by me or whoever takes this seat takes, uh, is offered in the spirit of generosity, freely offered. But the invitation is for you to offer support if you feel to. Much appreciation allows me to keep doing this. And I say whoever takes this seat because next week, uh, one of my favorite teachers... Uh, uh, Anushka Fernandopoli, who's been here several times already, great being, great teacher, uh, will um, will be with you, and I'll be back the following week. But uh, if you haven't experienced or spent time with Anushka, I think you'll appreciate her a lot. She's an activist. She's uh, she's um, she's of Sri Lankan descent, and so she has the the. Uh, uh, the experience of a, 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 a pers- uh, of diversity issues, very attuned, very sensitive. She's just an uh, extraordinary person, very, very smart, and I think you'll really enjoy her teaching. So that, she's next week. I'll be back the following week. And then we have, over the span of the next couple months, we have some, we, we're going to have a, a, a Thai forest nun leading the group one night. And then uh, we'll have Yvonne Ginsberg will be back, but I'll be here most of the time, but there, we will have some guest teachers. So please be your molliness and be mindful. Thank you.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.